Thank you for tuning into our Podbean subscription. We hope that you enjoy the message and we trust that God will speak to your heart. If you would like to sow into the ministry of Rebirth, please feel free to do so. You will find our banking details along with our PayFast link in the sermon description. Now, let's get straight into this week's message. Amen. Thank you so much, Dwayne. Family, this is the month of love. And Dwayne is still single. <laughs> Just putting it out there. Um, don't queue up after the service with Dwayne. Busy hiding. Don't run too far, Dwayne. <laughs> Thank you so much, uh, Dwayne. Can you just bless the Lord for what He's doing in Dwayne's life? Will you? Yeah. Amen. God is good. Uh, we figured for the month of July, we're just going to allow time, uh, instead of uh, song items, uh, time for testimonies. Um, we overcome the enemy by the blood of the Lamb, the word of our testimony, and because we do not love our lives to the end. Uh, can we pray this morning? Lord, we thank you for your presence. We pray, Lord, that as we open your good book, your word, that you enlighten us. And we pray that your presence will minister to us, your sweet spirit. And we ask that Jesus will be glorified in everything we say. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Uh, Pastor Israel called me uh, yesterday excited that I'm back preaching. And he said I mustn't pull a hamstring. (laughs) It's been a while and uh, I'm just excited to be back with you. Um, turn with me, will you, to the book of Revelation. This morning we begin our series in the book of Revelation. When you're there, please give me an amen. amen. If you are seeing Leviticus... And you're seeing Matthew, you need deliverance. (laughs) It's the last book in the Bible. And before we get there, just a reminder for those of you on our comms group, uh, we are beginning our Bible uh, study program soon, our discipleship program. Uh, Tomorrow evening, um, we have a brief uh, via Zoom. Look out for those details. The Bible study and discipleship program is a response to one of our team members who said, stretch me. Hallelujah. So if you feel there's more in your tank and you'd like to grow, uh, log on tomorrow evening and, uh, and just connect with us and we'll give you an idea of how we plan to provoke you to spiritual growth. Come on. Revelation chapter 1, we are just going to read the uh, prologue from verses 1 to verses 8. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants, things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it for the time is near john to the seven churches which are in asia 
This is modern-day Turkey. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from his uh, washed us from our sins in his own blood and he has has made us kings and priests to his god and father to him be glory and dominion forever and ever amen behold he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him even so amen I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Amen. Amen. God bless to us the reading of his word. And if there's ever been a book that has stumped the minds of scholars and theologians over the ages, it's been the book of Revelation. It's also a book that has been subject to much and most mishandling and misinterpretation. It was G.K. Chesterton who humorously said about the book, and though St. John, and I quote, and though St. John the Evangelist saw many strange monsters in his vision, he saw no creature so wild as one of his own commentators, unquote. It's important for me this morning to preface the sermon and this message with a few critical remarks and important remarks. Just for you to consider before we get into the book, firstly, you need to come to terms with the fact that revelation can be understood, but not in its finer detail. Parts of it will always remain a mystery until the fulfillment is clearly evident. Secondly, we also need to embrace the fact that in order to learn, we need to unlearn. And the unlearning process is the most difficult part of learning. And for many of us, all we did was sit back and watch the Left Behind series. And so during the course of this sermon series on the book of Revelation, we need to unlearn some of the teachings that we have uh, learned over the years. Some may even be from your favorite Bible prophecy teacher. Thirdly, we cannot afford to commit intellectual suicide. When you came to Christ, we, you don't put your mind in neutral. We will throw around some eschatological terms, some theological terms. And I've heard it time and time again for as many decades as I've been a preacher, other preachers tell me that we should talk directly to the congregation and never talk above their heads. But that is a subtle deception because we never get to provoke the thinking of our people. So to some extent, I'll talk a little over your heads and your responsibility is to go home and do the homework. So we cannot afford to put our minds in neutral. Jesus said, 
that we are to love the Lord our God with all our hearts, with all our soul, with all our strength, and with all our minds. The Bible is no lazy man's book. It will not yield its fruit to the lazy. We need to apply ourselves mentally. Are you still with me, church? Amen. Fourthly, we need to come to a point at certain times that we will have to agree to disagree. And it's okay to agree to disagree as believers. You have what's called essential doctrines and you have what's called peripheral doctrines. If you believe in a rapture and brother so-and-so don't believe in a rapture, that is not an essential doctrine for you to be saved. That is a peripheral doctrine. In other words, the teaching of the, of the rapture does not determine whether you are saved or not. It's your faith and belief in Jesus Christ. And we all need to agree on the essentials. There is a relative importance on what we believe. And what we believe will always fall into four categories. It will fall into what's absolute. In other words, what are our core beliefs? We cannot disagree on our core beliefs. That Jesus Christ is God in the flesh manifested. We cannot disagree on that. We cannot disagree on what is the requirement for salvation. We, that is a non-negotiable. We divide over that. Then our beliefs fall into convictions, which are not always core beliefs. What is important for you may not be necessarily important for me. And these convictions may impact on how effective we are as a church and a body of believers. And we need to determine whether these, these beliefs are absolutes or they are convictions. Thirdly, you have what's called opinions. Opinions are not always clear issues and they are not worth dividing over. And lastly, there are questions we have. Unsettled issues that we don't yet have the answers for. Our beliefs fall into those four categories. And lastly, we won't be able to address all the answers in this series. But the burden and responsibility falls on us to be wise Bereans. To go home and take up the discipline and task of studying the Word of God for ourselves. Amen. Amen. Now let's get into what the book is generally about. The author, unmistakably, is the Apostle John, known as John the Beloved, the son of Zebedee, brother of James, and was a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the author of the Gospel of John and the Epistles of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. The title, um, Revelation, is the English translation for the Greek word apocalyptic. It's where we get the word apocalypse. It means the unveiling. The date in which Revelation was written is probably the most intense and contentious debate that has been going on for the longest time. Some date the book of Revelation before AD 70, some dated after AD 70. The reason why this has been a point of contention is because there are many scholars who believe that the events of Revelation were fulfilled in the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. And so, the belief system 
and the understanding and interpretation of Revelation largely depends on the date which is written but the date is not clear some of the arguments about an early date uh, is a literal reading in into chapter 11 verse 1 to 2 that describes a temple that John is to measure and preterists which I'll explain in a few moments later uh, believe that that this was a literal temple and if the temple was still around then that means that John wrote uh, this, this book and had these revelations before the destruction of the temple but obviously when you read into the power out of the passage you see that it is actually uh, not a literal temple it's a vision he's seeing some also believe that Nero Caesar is the Antichrist uh, in Revelations 13 because when you calculate the numerical value of his name you get triple six and so preachers believe that this is one of the strongest arguments they have to the book of Revelation being uh, written prior to AD 70, the destruction of the temple. Preachers also believe that Revelations 1 chapters, uh, verse 7, the reference of Jesus coming with the clouds is a reference to his ascension in accordance to Daniel chapter 7. But the strongest argument lies with those who will date the book later. Because many historians, and there are many Roman historical records that point to John writing, writing and recording the revelation in Domitian's reign. You have many historians like Pliny, a Roman historian who recorded that John was around during the time of Domitian's reign. Also, when you look at the condition of the seven churches, you find that they have far progressed away from their faith and passion and spiritual fervor for the Lord Jesus Christ and this also serves as an indicator that that this letter and revelation was given to John at a later period um, during the reign of Domitian especially when you read about the rebuke Jesus gives to the church of Ephesus where he says to the church of Ephesus, you have lost your first love. And if you follow the dates and the history of Ephesus, this church was a center and hub for the gospel. So the strongest argument lies with the later date. The audience that John is addressing is the seven churches and believers in the time of Asia Minor. That's the immediate original audience. And we have John in this setting and context exiled to Patmos, the Isle of Patmos, which was roughly 100 kilometers away from Ephesus, offshore. Church tradition states that John lived and ministered during the time when the imperial cult was at its strongest, where every Roman emperor, namely Domitian, claimed deity and professed himself to be a god. In fact, it was in Ephesus, uh, 86 AD, that it's recorded that Domitian had built a temple in Ephesus where the citizens of Ephesus would come and sacrifice and worship to, uh, in honor to him. And it was during this time that John denounced these practices. John proclaimed the gospel. And Domitian had him exiled 
to Patmos. People in that time in Ephesus were forced to worship the emperor, was forced to worship Domitian. And so there was a real test of loyalty. Whether you were loyal to the state of Rome, whether you would worship Caesar Domitian, or whether you would serve the Lord Jesus Christ. The book can be structured in a prologue, which is chapter 1, verses 1 to 8. It's also composed of a body from chapter 1, verses 9 to chapter 22, verses 5. And then the book ends with an epilogue in chapter 22, verses 6 to 21. There is a repeated theme in both the prologue and the epilogue. Both the prologue and the epilogue make mention and reference to an angel. Both the prologue and the epilogue make mention to a blessing to those who hear and keep the words of the prophecy. Both the prologue and the epilogue make reference to John identifying himself as the recipient of the prophecy. And both the prologue and the epilogue make mention to the fact that God is the Alpha and the Omega. When we look at the body of the letter from chapter 1 verses 9 to chapter 22 verses 5, we have four detailed series of seven messages. In chapter 2 to 3, we have the seven letters to the seven churches. From chapter 4 to chapter 8, we have the seven seals on the scroll. From chapters 8 to 11, we have the seven trumpets. And from chapter 15 to 16, we have the seven bowls of wrath. The letter moves from a general, uh, a, a general movement to, to a place where uh, it culminates in the return of Christ. So you have it divided as uh, mentioned in chapter 1 verse 19, where Jesus, the Lord tells John, write these things which... Must, uh, which, ha which you have seen and the things which must shortly take place. So the letter can be divided into the things that are and the things that must take place. So the letter addresses the present time issues that John uh, is aware of and it is addressing the future which John is not aware of. The important things to take into account when we approach the book of Revelation is how we interpret the book. Firstly, we need to understand what is the purpose of the book. The purpose of the book is to provide the church with encouragement during a time of great persecution and trial. And the themes that we see running through the book is that God is sovereign over everything natural and supernatural. And that Jesus is the lamb slain for the sins of the earth. We also see the theme of Satan's fierce antagonism and hatred towards the people of God. And then we, of course, we see the return of Christ and his victory over the forces of evil. And then lastly, we see the theme of his judgment that he will judge the beast, he will judge the false prophet, and he will judge the dragon. And the last enemies he will judge is death. When we look at the book of Revelation, it's important to understand what genre type we are dealing with. We are not dealing with an ordinary epistle, a narrative, or we are not dealing with Hebrew poetry. We are dealing with an apocalyptic work. The way you read an apocalyptic letter will be way different to the way you read the Gospels. 
And so in this letter contained in Revelations, we have three kinds of genre. We have apocalyptic literature, we have prophetic literature, and we have an epistle. It takes on the, that form. One of the features of apocalyptic literature is that there is an extensive use of symbolism. Some symbols are obvious. Some symbols are explained in the book of Revelation. Some scriptures like, uh, or symbols like the tree of life are paralleled with the rest of scripture. And some, uh, some symbols are just obscure and not possible for us to know. One of the most frequent uses of symbolism we'll see is the use of numerology. And what we see, especially in the first chapter, is the use and pattern of the number three. Now, the number three points to the Trinity, but John is employing this, this number three in a three-clause pattern, like a waltz. I know uh, our Cape Tonians in the corner, they will know what I'm talking about when I'm talking about a waltz. One, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. And so what you'll see in the first chapter, in verses 2, if you'll turn there with me. You'll see John saying, verse 2, that God gave his message, he signified with an angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God, that's one, to the testimony of Jesus Christ, that's two, and to all things that he saw, that's three. Verse three, blessed is he who reads, that's one, and to those who hear the words, that's two, and to those who keep the things that are written, that's three. Then he addresses God as the one who is, who was, and who is to come. One, two, three. Then he addresses Jesus as the faithful witness, that's one, in verse five. The firstborn from the dead, that's two. And the ruler over the kings of the earth, that's three. One, two, three. How do you overcome the enemy by the blood of the lamb? One. By the word of your testimony? Two. And we quote there and we finish. But where's the three? And because they did not love their lives unto death. That's three. Why does he do this? He's creating a rhythm. One, two, three. One, two, three. Why? Because the prophecy was to be read aloud. And the folk in antiquity did not have copies of the scrolls. So they had to commit a lot to memory. One, two, three. One, two, three. And so the numbering system helped them to retain what they heard. You also see an extensive use of the number seven. Seven is a symbol of completeness. It signifies perfection. So when you see a reference to the seven spirits before the throne of God, it's a reference to the Holy Spirit who is perfect and complete. This is one of the ways in which revelations groups its structure. You have in chapter 1 and in chapter 11 and in chapter 20 a reference to the seven churches. Again in verse 4 in chapter 1, the seven spirits. Uh, in chapter 1, 
chapter 20, in any chapter 2, you have a reference to the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars in chapter 20, chapter 2, chapter 3, the seven flaming torches. Uh, you have a reference to the lamb with seven horns and seven eyes. You have seven angels that stand before God. You have the seven thunders. You have seven angels uh, before God, the dragon with seven heads. This is not communicating that there are seven entities, but one entity that is complete and perfect in its ways. The, the author also includes other groups of seven, which don't necessarily, uh, necessarily uh, you know, enumerate. Like you'll find the reference of, Blessed is he who hears the words of this, of this prophecy, who, who, who keeps the word of this prophecy. You, that's the first blessing of seven to follow in Revelations to those who read and keep the prophecy. So the first blessing we have to hearing and reading and keeping the words of Revelation is part of a sevenfold blessing to those who hear and read the book of Revelation. And so we have to consider that when Revelation makes use of numbers, we don't interpret it literally. And we'll get to the 144,000. I know you're waiting. <laughs> we also need to pay attention to the imagery used. Beasts, heads, and horns represent kingdoms and kings. The earth and the sea are representative of different, the, the two dividing nations between Jew and Gentile. So when Revelation speaks of the earth, it speaks of the Jewish nation. When it speaks of the beast coming out of the sea, it's speaking about the leader or kingdom coming out of the Gentile nation. One other feature that we miss, and this is where we get it wrong in our understanding of the book of, of Revelation, is we look for a chronological order, timeline. But here's a feature of apocalyptic literature, that time is fluid. We've said Jesus has been coming back for many years. Many years. But like a dream, like a vision. You know when you have a dream and vision, sometimes the experience feels like it's going on forever. You go through a thousand scenes and emotions just to wake up and realize that it's only 3 a.m. in the morning. In a similar fashion, the vision that John received uh, time was fluid. So Revelation is not a chronological timeline of the end days. It's an abstract painting. And an example of this is when in chapter 6 or chapter 12 when the Bible states that Satan's time is short. In the context of Revelation 12, it is painting the entire rule of Satan from the time the child was born. It's describing the entire rule of Satan and it's saying the time is short. Yet if you calculate the span of those years that, this, that, the, that, uh, that Satan has ruled, it was thousands of centuries, it was hundreds of years. Yet Revelation says his time was short. And Kuster makes a distinction uh, and, and, and states that in the book of Revelation, we should distinguish between what's visionary time and what's chronological time. 
Lastly, what we need to take into consideration when looking at this type of literature is something called recapitulation. I'm not going to ask you to say that after me. Recapitulation is the act of restating something in a different perspective. And what we see in the book of Revelation is we see one set of events repeated seven times. But each time it's, re it's repeated, it's repeated from a different perspective and with a different kind of focus and intensity. So Davis has suggested that when we look at the entire book of Revelation, we have seven sections that actually depict two events, the first and second arrival of Jesus and the time in between. So he says, uh, each time in Revelation from chapter 1 to chapter 20, the story of Jesus saving and judging is retold, but in a different way. So you have seven sections from chapter 1 to chapter 20. And this tells us that Revelation is not meant to be read as a chronological order of events. We see this feature of recapitulation take place in chapter 5. If you'll turn with me to chapter 5, we see it also take place in chapter 7. So in chapter 5, verse 1, I'll read the first few verses for you. Then I, John, saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Verse 3. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. Verse 5, And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Verse 6, And between the throne and the four living creatures, and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing, as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits God has sent out in, into all the earth. Now, when John heard the elders speak, he heard him speaking of a lamb that was slain. But when John turns to look, he sees a lion. Two different perspectives, but one entity. Then we come to Revelations chapter 7. If you can just turn with me. We'll read from verses 1 to 10. John writing and said, After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on the earth or sea or against the tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who was given the power to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees 
until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And John says, notes verse 4, I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel, 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed, 12,000 from Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 to Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, uh, Simeon, Levi, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and 12,000 from Benjamin was sealed. That's what he heard. He heard the number of those that were sealed, 12,000 from each tribe. But when he turns to look, he says, Behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every tribe and nation and peoples of the earth and language, clothed in white robes, had palm branches in their hair. Now the question is, is there a difference between what he heard and what he saw? No. The 144,000 is the multitude he saw. There's a correlation between what he hears and what he sees. It's a recapitulation. It's a repeat, but in, from a different perspective and angle. Are you still with me, church? So the, there is no literal 144,000 believers in the last day. There's a symbolic number of the church of God, made up of every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. Amen. Are you still with me? Amen. Lastly, we need to appreciate the Old Testament usage within the New Testament. Revelation actually contains over 500 allusions to the Old Testament in only 404 verses. 24 out of 39 books of the Old Testament are referred to in that one book. Pawson stated that John not only had his heart on the churches and that John was not only caught up in the spirit on the Lord's day, but John had his mind in the word of God. He had his mind steeped in the Old Testament, which was their Bible of the day. And so to understand the book of Revelation, we need to read it with the Old Testament open. Yeah. We need to understand the symbolism behind the beast that Daniel saw. To appreciate the symbolism of the beast John saw. We need to appreciate the usage of numerology in the book of Daniel to appreciate it in the book of Revelation. If we don't understand the significance of the tree of life, we will never understand the, the uh, use of the tree of life in the book of Revelation. There are five major interpretive views to the book of Revelation that most scholars will adopt one or the other. There's the Preterist view. Scholars and believers who look at the events of Revelation fulfilled during the time of the Roman Empire and the destruction of the temple. Then there's the historical view which is becoming very popular uh, where scholars and believers look at the events of Revelation fulfilled in church history from the time of the book of Acts, the apostolic era, right until the coming of Christ. And then there is the idealist uh, view and interpretation of the book of Revelation, 
uh, which sees the events of the book as just a representation of, of actual events. It's just all symbolic of the war between good and evil. And then you have the, the, the futuristic view, which most charismatic and Pentecostal uh, movements and churches have adopted. Uh, so from beginning in chapter 4, everything is futuristic until chapter 22. But we will adopt what most scholars advise as the most appropriate interpretive view, is to take an eclectic view. In other words, to take the strength of each view and put them together as it relates to the text. In other words, we will take uh, the period or the events in Revelation that relate to the original audience and we will take the portions that are seen that relate to a future event and then we will take the symbols and the message that is conveyed to the believers and we will put it all in one pot so to speak now we can get into our sermon <laughs> amen it was quite a build up Pastor uh, C now I want you to focus on verse 1 with me we looking at our prologue the revelation of Jesus Christ I've given you the context and the setting for the book that the book and the prophecy John received was during the time of the imperial cult um, Domitian Nero uh, Caesar was literally described as a madman who claimed himself to be a god there is no emperor that persecuted and tortured the church like Caesar Domitian. The church was under an incredible time of persecution. And John receives a revelation from God. This teaches us from the opening verses and pages of Revelation that when the church is going through something God is never silent God speaks the church is going through the fires of persecution and God is not silent he decides to speak powerfully through apocalyptic visions that he gives John and he's reminding John and he's assuring the church that in spite of what you are going through, I am still in control. Amen. Perhaps that's one of the most valuable points I can impart to you this morning. That when you are going through the most, and I see this in my own life, you don't necessarily need the circumstances to change. I need to hear his voice. Come on. I need to hear him speak. If he can just speak and assure me that I'm going to make it out on the other side, it doesn't matter what hell the devil can throw at me. God spoke to me. And so in times of testing, in times of trials, we need to seek his voice. We need him to speak. And Paul goes through something similar in Corinthians. He said he prayed to the Lord three times. Lord, remove the stone from my flesh. He called it a messenger of Satan. Remove it from me. And the Lord spoke and said, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in your weakness. 
what we also learn from the opening verse of Revelation is an important interpretive key to the entire book that this book is a revelation of Jesus Christ Amen. don't miss this if you miss this key you've missed it all it's not about the Antichrist it's not about the apocalyptic judgment that will fall on the earth it is a revelation of Jesus Christ Amen. the word revelation means apocalypsis it means to disclose to unveil unseen realities literally means a peep behind the scenes so in context of the book of Revelation it has an immediate and a broader meaning it means that this is a revelation from Jesus and this is a revelation about Jesus Amen. and so while the church is going through and facing its uh, its time of difficulty and persecution God in a sense is let me take you backstage let me draw back the curtains and let me show you who's in charge and let me show you what's really happening so the prophecy and the visions that were given to John were given in a dark time for the church and effectively God is saying to the church that behind the stage of human history Jesus is still on the throne and let that thunder from every pulpit in our land that Jesus still reigns that he still rules that he's still alive and that he knows all things so it's a revelation that comes from him it's a re revelation that belongs to him and it's a revelation about him he is both the object and the transmitter of the revelation and Shriner says uh, that revelation is a radically Christ-centered message he says there are 24 distinct descriptions of Jesus in chapter 1 alone he's called the faithful and true witness He's called him who was coming on the clouds. He's called the Son of Man. He's called him who, who was, who is, and who is to come. He's called him who lives and was dead, and behold, is alive forevermore. He's addressed as the one who loved us. All in chapter 1, 24 distinct descriptions of who Jesus is. 18 further descriptions in chapter 2 to chapter 3, which totals between the first three chapters of Revelation, 42 descriptions of who Jesus is. And in total of the whole book of Revelation, 90 descriptions of Jesus. This is interpretive key. It's a revelation about Jesus Christ. We also see in the opening of the book of Revelation uh, the chain of revelation that is communicated through uh, the father gives the revelation to Jesus Jesus gives the revelation to an angel and an angel passes the message on to John and John is to proclaim and pass the revelation on to uh, the Lord's servants this is a distinct feature of apocalyptic literature is the use or the employing or mediation of angels 
You'll see this in the books of Daniel, Ezekiel, and Zechariah, and in any uh, apocalyptic book, even to the extent of apocrypha like Enoch and the book of Jubilees, you'll see uh, that there is a distinct feature of the reference of angels in executing judgment as explaining or, or imparting the revelation of God. You see them also in the worship of God around the throne. In the book of Revelations alone, we have 67 references to angels. They are seen worshipping around the throne, they are seen executing judgment, and they are seen uh, giving the revelation of the scrolls. Angels are used very significantly in the book of Revelations. They are powerful beings, and when they show up, they usually solicit two responses. They say, fear not, or get up. That's what awful, like, awry and, and majestic creatures these are. And they're seen worshipping around the throne. But perhaps nothing strikes me more in the introduction of Revelation than how God refers to his children. He refers to them in verse 1 as his servants as slaves and the Greek word used there is doulos which literally means bond servant and one who gives himself up to the will of another a servant is one who's devoted to another even to the disregard of his own interests and here we have in context an imperial cult of Rome that's demanding worship and loyalty to Rome and God says give it, give this message to my slaves these are my servants not the servants of Rome so the question is this morning like the question is to the churches of Asia Minor who will you choose and who will your loyalty be to Will it be to the Caesar of this world or will it be to the Christ that you serve and profess? Are you committed to him as a servant? Are you willing to give up your self-interest for his will? Are you about your own dreams and visions and self-gratification? Or are you about the master's business? This message belongs to servants. And so we have in the prologue, the first reference to a catalogue of seven blessings that's pronounced upon those who read, hear, and keep the words of the prophecies. The rest of the six blessings can be found in chapter 14, verse 13, chapter 16, verse 15, chapter 19, verse 9, chapter 20, verse 6, chapter 22, verse 7, and 14. But notice in the first blessing, first blessing pronounces a blessing upon those who read, hear, and keep the prophecy. This implies that the prophecy has some kind of responsibility to obey. There's an ethical responsibility that is associated with reading the book of Revelation. In other words, the book is not just for speculation. The book is for practical application and obedience. 
and then we see John in chapter 1 proceed to address the seven churches he addresses the seven churches and he says grace and peace from him who was and who uh, and who is and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before the father's throne and from jesus christ the faithful witness the firstborn of the dead the ruler of the kings of the earth john anchors his greeting and his blessing in a triune god him who was and who is and who is to come and from the seven spirits the holy spirit was before the father's throne and from jesus christ a faithful witness the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth and what we see here is an importance in understanding that god is a triune god and it's been a challenging concept for many Westminster's larger catechism asked the question, why is the doctrine of the Trinity such a stumbling block to many? And the answer, because it is a mystery which human reason cannot explain. Another question is posed by the Westminster's larger catechism. Is the doctrine of the Trinity contrary to reason and understanding? And the answer, no. It is not contrary to reason, but it is above human reasoning. Does the doctrine of the Trinity contradict itself? No. God is one in one sense, and God is three in a different sense. God is one in substance, and God is three in persons. And if we fail to understand that God is a triune being, we fail to appreciate to the full extent the plan of salvation because our faith and the word of God rises or falls on, on our understanding of the Trinity and so we we look at the father that's addressed in this greeting him who was and who is and who is to come John alludes here to the self-revelation of of God to Moses where the Lord introduced himself to Moses in a burning bush and said, I am the one who is. I am what I am. Jameson and Whitman stated that just as God is free from becoming, so also God is free from the constraints of time. He's immutable. God's coming also points to his intervention in history. He is not only eternal and transcendent and immutable, but he is a God who was, who is, and who is to come. He intervenes in history. In other words, he is imminent. He is not just God above us, he is God with us. And uh, Davis suggested that when John addressed the father as him who was is and is to come it was a slap in the in the god greek god of zeus because in in greek literature and mythology uh, zeus was addressed as him who was who is and who will be so almost in a defiant way john is slapping the face of zeus and saying no yahweh is the one who is was and is to come and then John speaks about the Holy Spirit who is represented as the seven spirits before the throne. 
And this alludes to Isaiah 11 verse 2, where the Holy Spirit is described as the Spirit of the Lord who will rest on him, one, the Spirit of wisdom, the Spirit of understanding, the Spirit of counsel, the Spirit of strength, the Spirit of knowledge, and the Spirit of the fear of the Lord. These are seven attributes of the Holy Spirit that are ascribed to him in Isaiah. And John is alluding to this, and then John addresses Jesus Christ, who was our faithful witness. And so he, he sends grace and peace from the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and then he shifts his attention to a doxology of praise in the next verses. Because he shows us in the doxology that everything that was now uh, uh, accomplished to Jesus was actually the work of a triune God. And so in his doxology, he now addresses and praises the Son. He says, to him who loved us and who freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom and priest to God and Father. Some translation say, says, and made us kings and priests. John now turns our worship and devotion to Jesus and what he has done. And he gives him the title to him who loved us. Most translations translate that term as loved us. Some say loves us. But I prefer the term that's rooted in the past tense. He loved us because this points us back to a particular time and a particular place where Jesus loved us. Looks back to the cross. Every believer should be secure in God's love when we look back at the cross. His love for us and our love for Him should not be based on our present circumstances, but should be rooted in the fact that there at the cross, He loved us. And His love was demonstrated towards us in that Christ died for us. We need no additional proof of His love because we have at the cross of Calvary the ultimate demonstration and proof of His love for us. So look not at your present circumstances to measure His love for you. Look back to the cross. That settles the issue once and for all. And then we begin to see the first effects of his love and I'm closing the first effect of his love towards us is that John says he freed us from our sins with his own blood he loved us and he freed us from our sins with his own blood Guzik stated that we need to notice the order he loved us first and then he washed us and freed us from our sin. It wasn't that God needed to wash us first in order to love us. He loved us first while we were still dirty. And then he washed us. He loved us while we were still sinners when we had no good thing in us. Then he washed us. And so the phrase and the saying is true, come as you are. But don't stay as you are. He loves you right 
where you are. But he loves you enough not to leave you the way you are. And so the result of this love is the atonement of our sins. The freedom and liberty that comes from being washed in his blood. Something we miss about the book of Revelation is that for some reason we think that the major event in Revelation is the second coming. No. The major event in the book of Revelation is not the Armageddon. It's Golgotha. It's the cross. Because there at Golgotha, Satan was defeated. And what we have at Armageddon is only a consummation of that victory. His defeat was settled at the cross. The cosmic powers of darkness were overcome at the cross. Our salvation was accomplished at the cross. There at the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That's why in Revelation chapter 5 when John is weeping, the elders pronounced, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and the seven seals. Armageddon is simply an extension of Golgotha. And now we see the second effect of his love. That he did not just rescue us as slaves from Egypt, but now he gives us the same promise, the same experience that he gave the children of Israel. He said, I called you out of the land of bondage of Egypt to make you a kingdom of priests and kings unto me. So in Revelations, he says that Christ set us free with his blood and he made us a kingdom of priests unto God. It would have been enough just for him to love us and cleanse us. But he goes far beyond that. He says, I will make you kings and priests unto me. Kina stated that after God redeemed Israel from Egypt, he called them to be a kingdom of priests and kings before him in Exodus 19, indicating that they were called to be holy unto him. And in closing, verse 7 and 8, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord. He who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. And verse 7. Behold, the, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him. It is a combination of two Old Testament verses. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, and Zechariah 12, verse 10 which describe Christ's victory over the nations of the earth and describe the repentance of Israel. And that's what we see in Matthew 24 and John 19 as well. The same verse repeated. So some speculate that John could have drew from Matthew 24. But what John is reminding us of and encouraging the church of in his closing address 
uh, in his introduction and greeting he is saying that Christ rules and he reigns and there is a coming rule and there's a coming judgment and there's an eschatological future and so what the church early church looked for more than anything else was the second coming of Christ that's what the primitive church looked to more than death even more than heaven they looked for the time when Jesus Christ would come and McLaren stated so fitly when he said the early Christians were not looking for a cleft in the ground called the grave they were looking for a cleavage in the sky called glory they were watching not for the undertaker they were watching for the upper taker can we stand this morning family